Follicle. Legume. Capsule. Acine. Nut. Samara. Sleek. Schizocarp. Caryopsis. Cipsella. Droop. Berry. Poem. Pipo. Hesperidium. Welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ellie. And me, Ben. And if you want to know... And Max the dog. Oh yeah, Max is with us as well. We're dog sitting. Oh, it's so good. He's looking bored and we've only just started. (laughs) (laughs) It's just what all our listeners look like as well. (laughs) Oh well, at least you'll be quiet. We've sleep. (laughs) Well, if you want to know what on earth that list of nonsense words means at the beginning, then keep listening because in this episode we marvel at the diversity of this bountiful time of year getting acquainted with the benefits fruit can bring to any wildlife garden. And as ever, we have a native plant of the month, this time round the suitably fruity specimen of common hawthorn. And we've got not one, but two gardening correspondents. Yeah, you guys have really stepped up. Thank you so much. You and stepped keep... up about three months ago and then we've not got round to them. <laughs> sit on it. Yes. Well, we're busy gardening, aren't we? That's right. But we're going to hear from two of you today. We're going to hear from Tammy a few thousand miles away in Delaware. And also, Catherine, a few hundred metres away from us in Nottingham. Firstly, though, we wanted to bring you some news from around the gardening world. I'm taking News 1 this week. We've not done news for ages, have we? No. And actually, technically, this is old because it was announced a few weeks ago, but the nature of our podcast being monthly means we're a little bit behind sometimes. However, it is exciting. The announcement came a few weeks ago that DEFRA, that's the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, will ban the sale of peat to amateur gardeners by 2024. Now, we talked about this in episode 10 in spring 2021, a long, long time ago, when this was just an idea being discussed. And if you remember, back then a consultation was launched. Well, that consultation has come back with a whopping 95% of respondents backing a ban. This is, of course, a victory, but it has been a very, very long time coming. Nearly, how long? 30 years. Goodness. Or more. Probably more. As that is actually how long the fabulous charity Garden Organic has been campaigning against the use of peat for. And because it's taken this long, they're also calling for it to be extended to professional horticulturalists sooner rather than later. It does get a little hard to hear that the industry needs more time to develop alternatives over and over again. And I guess you can only assume that the huge sums of money there are to be gained from digging up peat and selling it is the actual reason that we still see it for sale. And you can learn more and join their campaign, for Pete's sake, which we'll put a link to in our show notes. But even better, you can choose right here, right now, to buy only peat-free compost. There's absolutely no excuse. We've been using it for years now, and we've had no problems. Yeah, I mean, there are better and worse peat-free composts out there, but there are better and worse peat compasts out there. You know, it's just nonsense if you if you have a bad bag of peat free compost just buy a different one next time and find one that works for you basically the benefit of it being in development is there's actually quite a lot to choose from now and we've certainly noticed it you know the diversity of it increasing in garden centers so that's a good thing and in case you're new to gardening the reason why we shouldn't be using peat in gardening is because its extraction obliterates really rare and important ecosystems And that ecosystem supports huge numbers of wild plants and animals in its own right. And if that wasn't even enough, then it also releases a lot of carbon into the atmosphere. So we really welcome this ban. Yeah, I mean, the way that works is plants grow, mosses grow on the peat bogs, and they decompose and the carbon gets stored. And as soon as you turn the carbon over and expose it to the air, it oxidises and the carbon becomes carbon dioxide. And I guess now that we've got our new government... Uh, which we won't go into lots of detail about what we feel about it. Um, We do all need to really pay close attention as to whether or not that 2024 ban is upheld. Yeah, keep a beady eye on it. Keep your beady eyes on it. I will believe it when I see it, basically. Yeah, keep writing to your MPs. It really does make a difference. Right, for me, well, this is both of us, because there's been a lot going on in the wildlife gardening world. So for my news... I'm going to give a few shout-outs because we've not given a shout-out to other people for a while. So, first of all, congratulations to the Wildlife Garden Forum. 
In the last two years, their membership, at least on Facebook, this is from their newsletter, they say it's jumped from 2,000 to 100,000 people, making it the largest wildlife gardening group in the world. Woohoo! Um, we interviewed Helen Bostock in episodes 17 and 18. Helen is sort of the wildlife gardening champion for the RHS. Um, and Helen has now transformed herself into a chair. <laughs> Go, Helen. Yeah, it's magic, isn't it? So... <laughs> In her new role as a chair, she chairs the forum, <laughs> which is the number one place to get science-based wildlife gardening advice online. Uh, it really is a brilliant resource. We use it all the time. So well done to them. And everybody listening should absolutely sign up to their excellent newsletter. They only do one every couple of months, but it's full of information, the latest studies that have, that have come out. Sign up on their website, which is wlgf.org. Org. Up next, if you haven't already, go back and watch episode 25 of this year's Gardener's World. It went out on the 9th of September. We caught up with it shortly after it was broadcast. It was a change from the usual schedule where the entire episode was given over to wildlife gardening. Yeah, we loved it. We genuinely had tears of joy in our eyes when we watched <laughs> it. It was beautiful and amazing. And we thought it was a pretty good introduction to wildlife gardening generally and a great platform to get the message out but we were also really jealous of some of the amazing gardens on there and the guests they interviewed who were all incredibly knowledgeable so it's well well worth a watch yeah yeah it was really good uh, another shout out now it's time to say hello to laura turner and co at the wildlife garden project who have a website full of info and produce a brilliant series of videos for YouTube. And the three latest videos on their YouTube channel feature us at our garden. So if you want to be a bit nosy and have a look what our own garden actually looks like, then get online onto YouTube and check them out. But the rest of the videos are fabulous, covering topics like sowing wildflower meadows, um, helping hedgehogs, what you can do for bats in your garden, all sorts of cool stuff like that. And their newest project is working with Living World education with whom they've produced a lovely free resource pack for kids all about garden bugs and you can download it free from the website to print out so you know i guess half term will be coming up soon so if you've got kids to entertain then i'd really recommend it basically links as ever in the show notes back to the bugs Two new books that we want to plug have come out in the last couple of weeks. First up is an identification guide to garden insects of Britain and Ireland. And that is written by Dominic Cousins and Gail Ashton. It is an absolutely vital book for wildlife gardeners that want to know more about the insects in their gardens, but don't know where the hell to start with a general insect ID book. Yeah, we've got insects of Britain and Ireland haven't we it's, it's daunting a, it's There's... a massive book <laughs> yeah. yeah it's a feel it's one of the um oh what's the series wild guides is yes, it yes wild guides yeah, yeah. it's i mean it's absolutely excellent if you're really into insects then get it but it's huge yeah and you just wouldn't know where to what page to even turn to basically so this this new book is kind of the antidote to that a little bit or you know they sit side by side but it's more concise and it's more of the things that you're definitely likely to see in your gardens yeah it's all garden insects yes yeah and each insect is given an excellent fact file and also excellent photos. So which yeah, is really, really big, helpful. high quality photos makes it really easy to ID them. And it also gives you lots of information on their lifestyle and stuff, doesn't it? And yeah, how you can help them in your gardens as well. Perfect. And the second is another book by Jean Vernon, whose book, The Secret Lives of Garden Bees, we talked about in a recent, was it last episode? Yeah, last episode. Last episode. Um, and she's written another book called Attracting Garden Pollinators. We haven't read this one yet, but if it's anything like the bee book that she wrote, then it's an absolute keeper. Yeah. So look yeah. out for that. We're just really good at spending other people's money, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good causes, though. And finally, a huge thank you to Mike Hill and the Wildlife Garden Project trustee Tom Shields, who let us tag along for our first ever proper moth trapping night. I think they were a little bit disappointed with the haul on that particular night but we were extremely excited just to be out and doing some proper moth, moth trapping yeah and it was our talking first time and yeah, proper may, bulb. may have uh, jumped for joy at a canary shouldered thorn that was which, your favorite please one, look it? up that moth i think i've told you to look that one up before but it is stunning absolutely yeah. stunning <laughs> i'm still excited now it was weeks ago <laughs> Brilliant. Well, that's enough shout-outs for one episode, so let's go on to the main topic this time, which is fruit. 
Starting at the beginning then, what is a fruit? In a sense, we already have some idea. We grow them, we eat them, we even decorate our houses with them. But us being us, we wanted a solid botanical definition. So I think, Ben, it's time for the botanical klaxon to set this episode up. Botany. A fruit is the structure that matures from a flower when its ovary has been successfully fertilised. And that can be done by insects or another way like the wind or even gravity. The fruit's what contains the seed or seeds for the next generation of a plant. So based on that, any flowering plant, sterile varieties accepted, can produce fruit. Even root vegetables like a carrot. It's just that we don't eat the seed from it. Fruits come in all shapes and sizes. And I think even non-gardeners might be able to look at something like a blackberry and a plum and know that they're both fruits, even though they look totally different. But the world of fruit is quite complex. All those terms we said at the beginning of the episode were the botanical names of different fruit structures. And we've definitely talked about some of them in our native plant of the month as well. Yeah, we've chucked a bit of jargon in and out, haven't we? I know, follicle came up quite recently. And some of them are dry and nut-like, some are fleshy, some have stones, some have tiny seeds, and the list goes on. Putting on my biology teacher's hat... Let's have a quick lesson before we get into the wildlife, starting with how fruits actually form. Lovely hat. Thank you. It looks like a pair of headphones. (laughs) (laughs) It's the inner workings of the female sexual organs of a flower which are important in fruit formation. In any flower, the carpal is the overall term for the whole female sexual organ. And the carpal includes the stigma at the top, where the pollen is captured, leading to the style, which is a bit like a tube, which then runs down to the business end or the ovary. Looking at just the ovary, that itself can contain one or more ovules, which each produce an individual seed. A pea pod is a really good example to use here. The pod is the fruit and the peas are the seed. When pollinated, each of the ovules within the carpal produce a pea, which is the seed, whilst the whole carpal swells and ripens to produce the pod, which is the fruit. Yeah. Yeah, so every time you're eating peas, if you're just eating the pea, you're eating seeds. And if you're eating monge too, say, then you're actually eating fruit. You're eating the whole fruit, indeed. And like with our pea, in true fruits, it's the carpal, the entire female organ, that swells to form that body of the fruit. And the seeds are then contained within that. But here, I want to also introduce you to some tricksy false fruits. Liars. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> it's a lie. This is where another flower part actually comes in, and that is the receptacle. The receptacle is a structure on which the flower develops at the end of the flower stalk. I know this is getting technical, so if you think of it like a cup in which the flower sits. Yeah, a good example of that would be roses, say. So if you've ever held a rose flower, behind the petals, you'll see a little swollen bit, basically. And at the top of the flower stalk, that's the receptacle. In the case of these Trixie false fruits, it's this cup, the receptacle, which actually swells and becomes the fleshy and attractive part of the fruit. A couple of great examples of this are actually strawberries and apples. On a strawberry, that bright, juicy red flesh is actually the swollen receptacle with the true tiny and hard fruits dotted around its surface. Similarly, on an apple, the fleshy part we eat is the swollen receptacle, which is called a pome. And then the true fruits are the sort of tough segments which make up the apple core and they contain the seeds. Mind blown. Yeah. yeah. I I think I've learned that before, but I've forgotten. They're lying to you. (laughs) They're not fruit. They're lying. If you cut an apple in half, you will see this. You know, you see the the big bulk of the fleshy bit, and then you get that sort of thick membrane on the inside. It's like a horniness, horny, horniness. Horny. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like tough and horny. <laughs> Wrong word. Carry on. Anyway, if you've got a really horny apple. <laughs> And in the middle, it's... Moving away from from botany. Carry on. Anyway, cut an apple in half, you get the fleshy bit, that's what the receptacle swelled up to make. And then you've got that membrane on the inside, that is the edge of the fruit within which you have the seeds, which are the apple pips. Yes. And whether a fruit is true or false, there are three ways it can develop on a plant. And that long list we gave at the beginning can actually be, each one can be categorised into one of these three groups. Bear with me on the new terms. We're actually on the home run now, I promise. These three categories are called simple fruits, 
aggregate fruits and multiple fruits. Very nice. Here we go. Here we go. Da, da, da. I feel like we need chariots of fire music in the background for this. <laughs> Can't afford that. <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Donations welcome, folks. <laughs> Simple fruits like a hazelnut or a pea pod can be dry or fleshy. And this is just where one fruit with one or more seeds is formed from one single ovary in a flower. That's easy. One flower, one ovary, one fruit. Yeah, one ovary, one pea pod. And that's the fruit, remember. So even if there's more than one seed in that pod, one ovary, one pea pod. Exactly. Then it gets a bit more complicated, as usual. There's aggregate fruits. This is where a single flower has within it multiple separate carpels. So that's remember, that's that grouping of all the female sexual parts, all with their own individual ovaries. And each carpel produces tiny individual fruits or fruitlets. The rub here is that as they swell, they actually fuse together to form an aggregate. And a great example of this is the blackberry. In the blackberry, you get one single flower producing a single blackberry, but all those little bobbles that make up the blackberry are actually individual fruitlets, each coming from its own separate ovary. Yes, so this time you have one flower, but there's lots of ovaries, so they make lots of fruitlets, but still just one aggregate fruit. And finally, 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 this is the last one I promise, are the multiple fruits. This is similar to an aggregate, except in this case, you have multiple separate flowers on an inflorescence, which form their own fruits, which then actually fuse together. Examples of this one are the mulberry or the fig. Look up a mulberry flower online and you'll see that the flower head is actually made up of lots of small flowers really, really close together. I had to do this. I've, I've recently been mulberry picking a couple of months ago and I had no idea what the flower looked like. And it is really quite bizarre, actually. I showed you, didn't I? Yeah, it's an sort odd, of one swollen thing. green thing with lots of little wigglers coming out of it. Which are the flowers. Yeah. <laughs> wigglers. That's what it looks like. <laughs> Our own terminology is getting quite interesting today, I think. <laughs> Each of those individual flowers are actually pollinated separately, but because they're so close together, the fruits from them merge as they swell. And that's what produces, in our example, a single mulberry. So lots of flowers, lots of ovaries producing just one multiple fruit. Yeah, and that's the, that's the main difference between um, a multiple fruit and an aggregate. Uh, an aggregate fruit. Because if you think of a mulberry, if you've ever seen a mulberry, some people won't have done. But if you see a mulberry, it looks like a really big blackberry. Yeah. Right. So you'd think that they would be formed in the same way. But actually the blackberry comes from one flower, whereas the multiple fruit, the mulberry, comes from lots of flowers. But it's just the fact that they're so close together that they swell up to what looks like one single fruit. You'll be glad to know I'm actually done on the botany. <laughs> and we will absolutely be mentioning some of those fruit types in the future native plants of the month. So hopefully they'll maybe make a bit more sense in the future as well. But we're not absolutely not expecting you to remember all those terms. We just like delving into this because it just shows the huge diversity of what's going on in our plant life. And hopefully it will make people just look at plants in a slightly different way. Next up, you'll be pleased to know we're actually going to talk about what is good for wildlife in terms of fruit in your garden because that's obviously what we're all interested in yeah but before that let's take a break from us and introduce you to our first gardening correspondent for this episode Catherine cooper from sunny snenton right here in the wildlife garden pod home city of nottingham My name's Catherine Cooper um, and I live in Snenton in Nottingham um, and in um, lockdown uh, we started putting pots outside our front door on the street because we don't have um, we don't have much of a garden at the back um, and they get it's our house is south facing so there's a lot more sun at the front so some planters that were doing really badly in the back came out at the front and then it has just spread and spread. We generally leave quite a lot of... If the kids collect sticks when they go out for a walk, then those sticks kind of get uh, shoved behind the back of planters to make a sort of um, insect hotel effect um, in underneath and around the back and in between. Um, and then... So now we've got plant 
pots, planters um, full of um, wildflowers, perennials and edibles in front of our house and we spread to next door in front of Steve's house and the other side in front of Alan's house and they're very pleased about it thankfully and then we got permission from the councillors to spread over to the park over the road um, which is a little pocket park and it was fairly unloved and known locally unfortunately as Needle Park um, because of all the discarded syringes there so the first job was to clean up and then created um, a, ra- a sort of raised bed in a really um, unused little bit of it. And now that's got two apple trees, a pear tree, a blueberry bush, a rhubarb uh, plant, um, and just loads of perennials and all sorts of different things. We've got an insect hotel in there. We've got Swiss chard and spinach that we've let go to seed and also a Cavallo Nero so that we get the flowers and uh, that's for the bees and other pollinators Um, and then our recent wildlife friendly job has been to make a a pond at the far end of the park in a disused bit um, which has got tadpoles in at the moment Um, so that's what we're doing for wildlife in Snowden Uh, Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you so much, Catherine. It's just amazing to hear how you've taken charge of your area to do something for wildlife. Yeah, it just goes to show that with a will in a way, everyone can do something for wildlife. Everyone. So really well done. And I think this deserves a round of applause from the Wildlife Garden Podcast patented Autoclappomatic 3000. Autoclappomatic 3000 engage. Oh, Ben, you are ridiculous with your sound effects. <laughs> Okay, so we are called the Wildlife Garden Podcast. So let's move away from the botany and into the purpose of fruits and why they're useful to wildlife. The purpose of a fruit of any kind, of course, is to protect and disperse the seeds inside it. Plants want to make sure their seed has the best chance of germinating and dispersal of those seeds can happen in lots of ways. So some fruits will explode open like with a broom plant. Uh, Some will be dispersed by wind like the helicopters of things in the Acer family, which are called Samaras. So things like sycamores have those. But of course, one of the ways that they're transmitted is by the action of animals. Yeah, actually, a lot of the fleshy fruit in particular, and the nuts, of course, have co-evolved with animals. So the reason all that effort is put into the fruit being tasty, juicy and nutritious is to manipulate something to come and eat it. And actually, we can count ourselves very easily in the animal bracket here. Some of us are a little bit wilder than others. Hey, Ben. Woof. (laughs) I mean, who can resist the lure of a ripe blackberry glistening in the late summer sun? You can resist those mulberries in the private garden you were not supposed to be picking mulberries in. <laughs> no one stopped me. <laughs> there were lots. They were falling on the floor. Just like I was a just... child covered in oh, red juice. I did eat too many and stained my brand new t-shirt for good. Yeah, we felt a bit sick actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, learn my lesson, I think. As humans, as animals, might not be the best dispersers now with our Victorian plumbing system making sure our poop is taken away and sanitised. If it's not dumped in the sea. Uh, well, yeah, no, there is also that, I suppose. But in principle, we're still being coaxed into helping plants who want us to eat it, move elsewhere as we do and um, deposit it elsewhere. Yeah, fun story. At my mum's old house, you might remember this. I do remember this. Their um, sewerage drain ran out the back of the garden and it got clogged. And uh, they've got a gravel, they had a gravel section at the bottom of the garden and uh, the sewage all came up and then they had it unblocked and it all drained away. They cleaned it all up, and then a few weeks later, hundreds and hundreds of tomato seedlings <laughs> came up all through the gravel. So you know where that came from? 
Actually, that's a really good example of something I was going to say because some fruits need to pass through the digestive system of animals to actually germinate. Right. And I mean, everything, all fruits are different, but some of them have a sort of protective goo over the seed, which the acidic stomach of a, an animal, like whether it's a bird or a mammal, will wash off and then the seed can germinate. So that's exactly what's happened to those tomato seedlings or seeds. But going back a step, the main point of us chatting about what a fruit actually is, is to open everyone's eyes to the full, huge range of food that could be made available to wildlife. And remember, it's not just what we put in our own fruit bowls, which is classed as a fruit. And as with everything in wildlife gardening, diversity is our friend. And you want to try and pack in as many different types of fruit as possible, because this will then therefore benefit a bigger diversity of creatures eating it. Yeah, so let's delve into some examples. Starting with the dry fruits, we've got grasses, of course, which I think are often overlooked as food, aren't they, really? Indeed, yeah. Um, If you've got a meadow that you've left over winter, uh, you might see birds coming for the grass seed. But also think about just ornamental grasses in a normal garden border. So we've actually watched sparrows clinging onto pampas grass and taking the seeds from them. That's quartered area. Uh, That was actually a surprise to us. We've never seen anything using pampas grass before. No, and I couldn't see anything written online either. So not everything is documented. No, that's right. And greenfinches and goldfinches will take miscanthus grass seed and panicum grass seed is also loved by some birds. So the ornamental grasses you can grow in your garden are really good for the fruits that they produce. Indeed. And then sticking with the birds, as we are a nation of bird lovers... You also can't go wrong with teasels, the fruits of which are absolutely loved by goldfinches. But actually, the list of all the dry fruits from herbaceous plants that are out there is absolutely staggering. Because you could plant things like sunflowers, like we do in our garden, hope the squirrels don't get them before (laughs) the birds do. Cersium, Echinacea, Helenium, Echinops. I've watched greenfinches take geranium seed before. And also listener Jeff Davis has seen greenfinches take lemon balm seed, which yeah, I'd never surprise. heard. That was a yeah. big surprise. And actually, I've just finished reading the RHS magazine for this month. And someone wrote in saying that they'd seen bullfinches taking lavender seed from Ooh. lavender they hadn't chopped back. Hey, that's nice. Isn't that good? Yeah, because people argue about the right time to cut back lavender. Indeed. So maybe it's better to leave it. Yep. The flower heads certainly over the winter. opened my eyes to it. Um, so yeah, and any fruiting plant has the potential to feed something just as long as you leave the seed heads on the plant. And this is obviously where the bloody awful tradition of tidying your garden for winter really does need to stop. Yeah, because if you cut back all of those seed heads, which are the bits which are still standing in the autumn and winter, then you're cutting off all the fruit. Indeed. And that's actually why we leave it until new growth appears in spring. If you're wanting a fruiting tree in smaller spaces, you can have hazel, uh, which is loved by nuthatches and squirrels, dare we say it, as well as mammals on the ground like wood mice, who sometimes you'll find the actual um, husks of the hazelnut with the little teeth marks cut around them. That's quite nice to see. Um, Silver birches are bountiful for seed for greenfinches and siskins. And if you're the lucky owner of a really big garden, then maybe you've got a beech or an oak tree, something like that. And the mass from those, uh, the seeds that fall down, also feed a raft of wildlife from voles to birds. Yep. And uh, by the way, this is not an exhaustive list. So there are many other trees as well that we can recommend, including the crab apple, actually. I don't know why I didn't write that one in because we love planting crab apple. Classic wildlife tree. Moving on from the trees, there's loads and loads of shrubs as well. And some of these can actually be grown as trees, which produce berries. And berries are a fantastic source for all sorts of wildlife. You can plant things like gelderose or dogwood Berberis, pyracantha is fantastic for birds, holly, honeysuckle, rowan, catoniaster, roses for the hips, and of course ivy. And really important. Yeah. Virginia creeper, which I did not know. Uh, apparently the, the small fruits are loved by mistle thrushes and blackcaps. Never heard that. Never heard it, never seen it, but we'll be looking out for it from now yeah, on. Yeah, that's a good one. Mm. Good one. Because Virginia creeper is quite, well, it's all over the place. Loads of people grow it, don't they? They do. Yeah. yeah. So with that variety, you really can be a bit of a garden designer. You're not restricted in any way when it comes to 
plants in how they look because lots of them will be producing some sort of food for something and then we've got all the top fruit of course the things that we eat ourselves apples pears plums just to name a few we always leave windfalls so that's just the fruit that is naturally dropped from the tree as long as possible on the ground because the local wildlife can get a good feed from it Uh, blackbirds in particular will gather to feast on fallen apples um, but lots of people don't realize how many invertebrates love a bit of rotting fruit too Uh, for that late season sugar rush, of course. So creatures from flies, wasps, and also the Lepidoptera, things like red admiral butterflies and night-feeding moss will go for fruit that's fallen on the floor too. Yep. So after that rapid whiz-through, the main fruity considerations in your garden, our three top tips are one, include as big a variety of fruit types and sizes as possible, from berries through to nuts, other dry fruits and bigger fleshy fruit like apples. Yep, number two, don't cut things back or be too tidy in the winter. Don't clear all the fallen fruit in the autumn. Leave things for the wildlife. And three, sit back, watch and observe what comes to feed in your bountiful gardens. And also, why not let us know what you've seen? I'm going to put a post out for this. I want to know the weirdest, wackiest thing you've seen eating something fruiting in your garden. Get in touch. To give you another break from us for a moment, let's teleport now from Nottingham halfway across the world to hear from our next gardening correspondent, Tammy Brandt, in a garden in Delaware in the US of A. which is on the east coast uh, about halfway in the mid-atlantic um, and this is my wildlife habitat garden um, so it is designed to flower as long as possible with as many different shape flowers and size flowers as possible and pretty much as many natives as i can pack in though a few that i just have always wanted to grow that are not native but non-invasive so This is our native beach plum, and then I have black-eyed Susans, um, lots of salvias, and those are two David Austin Generous Gardener roses on the arbor. Um, Also tons of herbs, so dill is sprouting up there. This is our yucca, that's a native, that one of our moths needs, specifically, and we have tons of those, they just sprout up and... um, Lychnus coronaria. This is our native allium right here. Um, so I companion planted to try to, um, with the both the salvias and the alliums near all of the roses. Um, GM over there. Herbs. Here is my butterfly weed. Gigantic lavender taken over this year. More butterfly weed, which is um, Asclepius tuberosa. And we come around here, I have native blueberry bushes for berries that'll be later in the season for wildlife. I have Baptisia australis, the purple one. I have a goldenrod and a shrubby St. John's wort and lots more yuccas. And Virginia creeper, this vine that you see everywhere. Um, uh, Panicum right here, switchgrass, so that we have some cover later in the year. Um, I'm trying to almost hedgerow all the way down here between our properties, though I don't own all of it, but they're happy to have me garden it. Um, I have oh, an artichoke, because I had an extra seedling this year there. I also have bulbs that pop up all over here. I have tulips, and I have um, mascari, the little grape hyacinths, and a number of different daffodils that come up first year for the hollyhocks and they all got a lot of rust so they all had to be defoliated at the lower level um so i'm hoping they survive and that's just because i've always wanted to have hollyhocks so i do have to say that your show really actually helped me let go of the having to have every single thing be a native plant and feeling guilty about also wanting to sometimes grow things just for fun lady of shallot roses as well as pat austin Um, and she's moving around because I don't know about, she didn't love it in the full sun. Allium, 
and the seed heads are left. This one is Culver's Root, which is Veronicastrum. It's a white one. Hydrangea, again, just because I love them. Eupatorium hyssopifolium, so hyssop-leafed thoroughwort. Um, it's a late-blooming eupatorium. Our native geraniums. Northern sea oat grass. Um, ho holly, American holly. That'll be a full tree eventually. This one is brand new, and it is the white wood aster, and it is going to provide flower in autumn back here in full shade, which I'm psyched about. I've been looking for that one for a while. It is designed to flower as much as possible to provide cover at all times of the year. When we don't have an avian flu outbreak, I have bird feeders and watering stations. Um, and I do have a bee watering station back there. And we also have, though I need to hang it, the butterfly house, my kid made little toad house village. Um, we have brambles and rock piles back there, rotting log back here, another one over there, and then way in the backyard we have a giant bramble pile in that back corner right there. So I'm hoping to provide, you know, all the things. I did take a wildlife gardening class and I have done wildlife garden design for schools and with schools. Um, I was a science teacher. So I am implementing all the things I would have done with my school. And I, we designed it as a unit during COVID with my kids when they were home and I was homeschooling them. So that was really fun. Okay. That is how it's going. <laughs> this is year three. So a few of these, some of these are on year three. Um, some are on year two, and then I leave some spaces just for fun annuals, too. Okay. Thanks. I love your podcast. Thanks. Bye. What's fascinating about Tammy's garden is that she is following the same advice we often share about trying to plant more natives, but how many of those natives are actually known to us in the UK just as ornamental garden plants? Yeah. I was really surprised by how many of the plants that she's growing we grow in lots of the gardens that we look after. Yeah, Tammy actually emailed us afterwards to share the work of Doug Tallamy, who's quite a well-known nature writer and scientist, and he's helped with a website called the Native Plant Finder, that is nwf.org, where if you're an American listener, you can put in your postcode. Zip code, a isn't AKA it? AKA zip code, yeah, exactly. And it will give you a list of plants native to your area. Obviously, it's easier for us in the UK to know what is or isn't a native plant because we're quite a lot smaller than North America. <laughs> but the range of habitats there are so diverse and the native plants to Delaware aren't necessarily native to the deserts of Arizona, for example. We know we have some listeners in North America. If you are over there, check out their website. And well done to me, of course. Your garden is absolutely fabulous. And you get a round of applause from the Wildlife Garden Podcast's Autoclapomatic. 3, Are we still going with that? Yeah. Also, Clapomatic 3000 engaged. native plant of the month time today we are in the rose family rosaceae talking about common hawthorn the latin name for which is cretaceous monogyna the generic name cretaceous comes from the greek kratos meaning strength and achis meaning sharp tip so that's referencing the thorn in hawthorn uh, while the specific epithet the second name monogyna means single seeded now, I'm sure we all know what Hawthorne looks like, but as we do have listeners from around the world, we'd better describe what it is. Um, Hawthorne is a shrub or small tree, typically growing to between two and eight metres tall with a rounded crown. However, the UK Tree Register records a specimen at Keithley, which is 18.4 metres tall, and another tree with the widest girth of 3.9 metres around measured at Crawley in Sussex. And that's pretty chunky. 
That's a big tree. Yeah, I've never seen hawthorn that big myself. No, no. Fascinating. But of course, it's the number one hedging plant across the UK. So it's often cut to shape in gardens or farmland where it's used as sort of a living stock fence thanks to its thorns. And it's also prone to being shaped and contorted by the wind. If you go out walking in the countryside, especially in the uplands, you can find hawthorn sort of twisted into all sorts of weird shapes following the prevailing wind. I love going to the tops of hills and seeing horizontal almost hawthorns yeah sideways totally sideways and there is a word to describe that that shape and i really want to find it again it just describes like the level of twisted gnarliness if anyone knows get in touch right in for the next episode now given the name hawthorn it's no surprise that it has twiggy growth with young branches sporting spiky thorns up to three centimeters long but time now for the second botany warning for this episode only the second yeah my whole section needed one every two minutes. Ah, yeah, you only get one. Botany. Hawthorn is a spring flowering shrub, and the inflorescence, which is the entire flower head, is called a corymb. Now, a corymb is where you have one central stalk heading from the stem. Then from the bottom up, along that stalk, there are side branches, each with a flower on the top, creating a flat flower head. And the particular quality of a corymb that's C-O-R-Y-M-B, is that the bottom branch makes the furthest out flower and then each higher side branch ends up with a flower closer to the centre. So some of you might know what that Jewish candle looks like. It's called the menorah. I don't know if anybody's seen one of those. Um, so, But it looks something like that, except each side branch is arranged alternatively up the stem rather than in opposite pairs. Each individual flower can be white or pink tinged or even red, typically with five petals about 1.5 centimetres across, with 20 male stamen and one female style, meaning the flower is bisexual or hermaphrodite. Finally, when pollinated, it produces beautiful bright red fruits that sparkle like jewels in the frost, and they're a hugely important food source for wildlife right across the UK and Europe. Okay, so let's look at the cultural history of hawthorn for a moment. Starting with the common names, we have hedgethorn, may tree, may blossom, white thorn, hawberry, mother dye, fairy tree and bread and cheese and its association with may is quite interesting typically it flowers around the middle of may of course that depends where you are in the country but it's known to be associated with may day which of course is may the first or at least it is now because the old may the first is now may the 12th what (laughs) yeah (laughs) right so in 1752 the calendar was changed and the annual calendar was revised moving the year along by 11 days so old May Day celebrations on what was happening on their May the 1st is what would now be May the 12th. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. So so the whole, so May Day yeah. had moved. But of course, the actual public celebration stayed on the 1st, except from the fact that with climate change, trees are blossoming earlier. So now the first blossom is often around May Day again, and we regularly find it in flower when going to May Day celebrations, which we often do given Ellie's dark secret. Would you like to tell everybody what your dark secret is, Ellie? Are we, are we doing this now? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> yes, I am a Morris dancer. But I have to say, Ben also was a Morris dancer once, and he got me into it. I he got just out. stopped. I got out. <laughs> yeah, we often uh, put may blossom in our hair and things when we're going and getting drunk <laughs> may day bashing sticks yeah oh, so much fun <laughs> the name bread and cheese comes from the leaves and fruits which are both edible although the leaves aren't really worth eating if you like your food to taste of anything um, the fruits on the other hand have been used for a wide variety of dishes and medicines now this is not i repeat not medical advice certainly wouldn't take any medical advice from you anyway no i'm not trustworthy but i am quoting the bes paper here as a treatment for chronic congestive heart failure stage two as defined by the new york heart association its usage is supported by clinical data and the support of cardiac and circulatory functions data and now i'm paraphrasing contagious extracts can increase the strength of heart contractions decreasing the excitability of the heart and increasing the conduction velocity in the av node with the advantage of no severe side effects like other cardiac glycosides so that last lot might mean something to you if you're a doctor but all i can say is that it seems like hawthorn is genuinely good for the heart and it's been used traditionally as a heart treatment for many hundreds if not thousands of years so to get your dose there are lots of edible ideas out there 
To get you started, check the show notes for links to recipes for Hawthorne leather. And if you've never made a, a leather before, it's, it's like a, a strip of fruit pulp, really thin, and it goes chewy like leather. So you eat it sort of like a sweet. You can make Hawthorne ketchup. And there's various healthy or boozy tinctures for you to make this winter recipes in the show notes. Now, there are a hundred other things I could tell you about the history of Hawthorne, but we don't have time. If you want to know more, Hawthorne gets seven full pages in Richard Maybe's book, Flora Britannica, because it has had such a deep impact on the folk history of people across Europe. Flora Britannica is a brilliant book. You can either pick up a copy or you can probably find it down your local library. It's quite a popular book, so it's everywhere. And yeah, seven pages, hardly anything gets seven pages in that book. Most get a short entry, so it just goes to show you that how much there is to learn about it. Now, Common Hawthorne is native across the UK and the island of Ireland. Um, however, its native range in northern Scotland is a bit less clear. And if you look at the distribution maps, there is a definite gap in central northern Scotland. It's got a pan-European range. It's spread as far north as Norway and Sweden. It goes east to the Volga River in Russia, then south through Turkey, northern Iraq and Syria. It's spread then across the Mediterranean, island hopping via Cyprus, Sardinia and Sicily, with a southern limit in the Atlas Mountains of North Africa. And of course, being a fruit readily eaten by migrating birds, it's no surprise that it's managed to find its way to many of the Mediterranean islands via poo. It's also been widely introduced around the world to North America... Argentina, South Africa, and is widely naturalised in Australia and New Zealand. Generally, it's a lowland plant. It's found up to 610 metres above sea level at Melmaby High Scar in Cumbria. But interestingly, the further south you go, the higher it climbs. So in the Alps, it gets up to 1,270 metres above sea level. And if you go to the Iberian Peninsula or as far south as the Atlas Mountains, it can get up to 2,200 metres above sea level. And finally, in the UK, it can grow on almost any soil, from soilless, craggy outcrops to rich alkaline or acid farmland soils. Uh, naturally, it will grow in a few different plant communities. So it can grow from scrub, which is with an understory um, of ivy, but it can also grow in woodland, particularly in association with ash and field maple. But because it's such a useful plant to humans, we've actually just spread it all over. So now it's found everywhere, including in gardens. Moving on now to the most important part of any native plant of the month, the sexual antics of the common hawthorn. As we've already said, common hawthorn is hermaphrodite, meaning each flower has both male and female sexual organs. But it's also an outcrosser and protogynous. Outcrossing, we've talked about before, and it means where each flower prefers to be pollinated by a different flower. And to help with that, we have the protogyny, and that means that the female organ comes to maturity before the male organ. Depending on where you are in the country, first flowering could be anywhere between sort of mid-April and mid-June. Uh, flowering reaches its peak between 10 and 18 degrees C and it's inhibited by rain, so it's quite weather dependent. It will change each year. When an individual flower opens, which is called anthesis, that's the, the moment at which the flower opens, the petals bend outwards and reveal the mature female stigma. And over the next two days, the male stamens swell and expand until fully erect. You love that sentence. That's pure science. <laughs> no sniggering. <laughs> Each flower is open for about five days, attracting pollinators by the bright petals and the flower's scent. The nectar it produces actually contain a yellow-coloured chemical called quercetin or quercetin or quercetin or quercetin. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> which supposedly has the scent of herring brine. Oh, lovely. Yeah, <laughs> due to the trimethylamine component. And I've read lots of reports of the scent being fetid, smelling rotten or like this, like brine fish. I don't find it too bad. No, I don't either. I actually quite like smelling hawthorn blossom. Yeah, it's kind of like... I, think it, I thought it was sweeter. It's a bit musty. Yeah, it's musty sweet. But... It doesn't smell like fish to me. Maybe we just love fish the smell to me. Of fish. <laughs> what does it attract then? Apart from us, apparently. It's highly attractive to flies, beetles, bees, wasps and sawflies. One study found pollen release takes place only between 7am and 5pm. 
So it's clearly trying to attract day active or diurnal species. Almost like the Dolly Parton song. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah, that's quite good. I might do a remix of that with Hawthorne. Can we afford that? No, probably. No. <laughs> <laughs> Once pollinated, each flower produces an individual poem. So this is just like an apple, and that poem is the bright red fruit. And these fruits, of course, I've mentioned are actually called haws, and it's the hawthorn. However, it's not really the fruit, as explained earlier, because the poem is a false fruit. So like the apple, the poem is fake. It's lying to you. But if, that doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. The wildlife matter. doesn't yeah. know that. Fruits start to ripen in August and they've usually finished ripening by late September with each flower head, and that's the corymb, remember, typically carrying five to eight fruits. It is one of my favourite fruits at this time of year for glistening in hedgerows and on individual trees in the yeah. countryside and in gardens, obviously. Yeah, it's highly ornamental. On a sunny day, it the sun just picks up that bright redness and it, it, they just glisten like little jewels. Yeah, yeah, they are really, really a beautiful plant. But of course, we want to know what its value to wildlife is. So given the mass of leaves, the flowers and the fruits, it's no wonder that hawthorn is such a vitally important plant for wildlife right across the UK and Europe. Starting with their thorny structure, they provide year-round shelter and protection for animals, especially mammals, both large and small. Uh, and they're also perfect nesting habitat, particularly for birds in the spring. The flowers are visited by mining mason and bumblebees as well as being a honeybee favourite. And it's also very popular with flies and hoverflies attracted by that supposedly Fish. fishy scent. As for the phytophagous insects... That's, what does that mean, Ben? Well, that's invertebrates that eat the leaves. Mm. Um, but we can also include flower buds in that. Um, so they eat this as the food plant, often in the larval stage. That's the caterpillar stage, say, of moths and butterflies. When we're talking about these insects, we often talk about the beautiful creatures. Again, the moths and so on. The shiny, colourful or even fluffy ones. Hawthorne does attract all of those. But today I thought I'd mention some of the less loved creatures that are Aww. equally reliant on it. And of course, they're equally important for all of our ecosystems. So Hawthorne is host to at least five ghoul mites, five ghoul midges, 29 species of aphid one sawfly, one jewel beetle, and five species of true weevil. A jewel beetle? That doesn't sound ugly. Well, it's quite a dull jewel beetle, actually, oh, that particular with one With someone up. being nice to it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're being kind. The fruit, those haws, is essential food for starlings, robins, blackbirds, missile and song thrushes, red wings, and field fairs, black caps, and more. One interesting thing, and I've noticed this myself, is that the haws tend to stay on the plant for quite a long time. They're perfectly edible to humans, but they do have a small amount of some slightly toxic compounds called saponins contained in that in that pulp. So wildlife will tend to only eat a small number of the fruit at each sitting, so they last over the winter. Self-rationing. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Now, all those birds I just mentioned are called seed dispersers, um, but there are also pulp predators. And I love this phrase. <laughs> So these are birds like blue tits, chiff chaff, bullfinch, chaffinch and greenfinch. What they do is they, they pick the fruit uh, or the poem and they chew the pulp off the seed at the centre. But they don't bother dispersing it. They don't actually eat the whole seed and put it out elsewhere. They just spit the seed out. And I've seen this myself where they just nibble the pulp off and, and spit the seeds. Mm, I wonder if um, the seed that they spit out is eaten by rodents down on the ground. Yeah, Obviously possibly. that isn't ecological either because that seed is then being chewed into a, a thousand tiny fragments but yeah eaten at least something else gets a feed from it well yeah so these pulp predators they basically just nick the good bit and they don't do much of the ecological work and i quite like that it's like the nectar robbing bumblebees hares will take them red foxes will eat them um small mammals like mice will take fruit that fall on the floor and last but not least a few weeks ago mark who's a listener to the podcast he actually put a general post out on twitter and he asked Planning to add more food plants for moth slash butterfly caterpillars next year. In particular, I want a shrub or small tree. Any suggestions? And lots of people chipped in with good plants for caterpillars. Um, so I actually took all of those suggestions and I ran them through the database of insects and their food plants, which is called DBIF. Um, you can just find that online. It's free to access again. And the top of all the suggestions that people made was hawthorn. Um, which supported the larval food stage of at least 130 Lepidopteran species. Wow, that's loads. It's loads. Mm. Yeah, so lots of other plants on there were really good as well. I know willow, like you've mentioned previously, mm. is a really good one. But yeah, hawthorn is a fantastic plant for moth and butterfly caterpillars. So if you want to grow one yourself, 
What do you need to think about? Well, first, if you're considering a fence for your garden, then just don't. Have a hedge instead, (laughs) (laughs) which allows me to say one of our favourite podcast catchphrases, which is hedges for edges. Interestingly, I have just shared Chris Packham's new competition for Hedge of the Year Award. Oh, I've never heard of that. Yeah, just today. um, Yes, he has launched it and you have to go out. I think it's more for hedges out in sort of rural agricultural areas to try and encourage farmers to put more hedges in. But if you see a particularly excellent one that is well kept, that's important, then send it in to that. With that said, I think hawthorn is often neglected as a standalone tree. It makes a fantastic specimen in its own right with interest right through the year because, of course, you've got the flowers early on and then you've got uh, the fruits, which then stay over the winter and glisten in that frost. Hawthorn truly is suitable for just about any garden. Uh, Research has shown it's highly adaptable to soil texture and pH. One study found it has an upper and lower limit for rainfall of 400 and 1400 millimetres respectively. So that pretty much covers everywhere in the UK. Wet weather too is fine, but one position it wouldn't like is in permanently waterlogged soil. So temporary flooding, that's fine. But if you've got long-term boggy ground, it's, it's not ideal for that situation. It's fully hardy, surviving down to at least minus 20 degrees C. It'll grow in sun or shade. However, it will flower better in a sunny spot. In deep shade and, uh, say, an enclosed canopy of other trees, it will grow, but it tends to produce less leaf mass and it will grow a bit leggy as well. So not really the ideal place for it in terms of its ornamental qualities. And also less flower and fruit will reduce its wildlife benefits as well. Yeah, that's absolutely right. All around then, a very versatile plant. Just one quick word on pruning... Because it flowers early in the year and it hosts nesting birds in the spring and summer but then holds fruit late, it can be a bit tricky to decide when to prune it. There are situations, of course, where you must give it a light trim in the middle of the year. We've got one, a long uh, hedge of one right next to a path in one of our clients' gardens and it does just need cutting back lightly in the summer. Otherwise, the path is completely inaccessible. But generally, the best thing to do is to divide your hedges into three or four sections. Each year, around January or February, cut back a third or a quarter of your hedge hard. So that's not just a trim, not just a tickle. Give it a proper hard cut with a set of loppers and give yourself enough room so that hedge can bounce back over a few years without being in the way. We see that mistake made so often where people just cut it to where they want it, forgetting that the hedge is then going to grow, which then makes you need to cut it more, basically. So yeah, that's a really, really good tip. As a freestanding tree, it does take very well to pruning. If it gets too big, give it an occasional thin as and when necessary. Right, now to plant yourself one, they're readily available as whips. And a whip is a one-year-old plant, and you get those from hedging suppliers, and that's by far the cheapest way to buy them. In this case, do buy British. We need to stop the mass import of woody plants, which are a vector for all sorts of plant pathogens into the UK. If the supplier you're buying from doesn't say that the plants are UK sourced, assume they're not and ask before you buy. It's amazing the number of plants that are actually being imported when they're perfectly capable of being grown here. Also, we're going into the season when you're going to be putting in bare root plants. Now is a really, really good time to be thinking about planting your hedge or your tree. And you could always try growing some from seed. Now, they have a seed dormancy, which can be a little bit tricky to break because they require cold stratification and that means they need cold weather over the winter to break the dormancy of the seed. But if spring temperatures are over warm, that can induce a secondary dormancy. So the best thing to do is to collect some haws in October when they're fully ripe, mash them with water in a bucket and then sieve through a colander to extract the seeds in the centre. Seed. Oh yeah. (laughs) Monogyna. The seed in the centre, then sow them into pots of seed sowing compost, or you can make a mix actually yourself. You could use 50-50 peat-free compost or leaf mould with an equal part of sand. So a few seeds into each pot and then just leave them outside in a sheltered spot. You've got to give them a water as well. But given the possible double dormancy, you could wait 18 months for germination. But, you know, it's completely free. They're not going to take up much room. So just make up a few of these pots and put them somewhere out of the way. There is a brilliant page on the Conservation Volunteers website which shows you just what to do with this and there'll be a link to that in the show notes. Finally, as for cultivars, there are a few to try. The basic species is good enough for most situations and it will flower its socks off. But if you're looking for a particularly spiny hedge, perhaps for security maybe, the variety Ferox is particularly mean in its thorniness. 
For a freestanding tree in a small space, there's actually a dwarf variety called Compactor that you can buy. And finally, there's the famous Glastonbury Thorn. And this is Cretaceous Monogyna biflora. It flowers twice a year. What? Yeah. I've never heard of that. It flowers once in late spring, but then again in autumn slash winter, even over Christmas. And the story goes that none other than Joseph of Arimathea was knocking about Glastonbury on Christmas Day. As you do. Yeah, with the Holy Grail, actually. He was just hanging around. Uh, we've all done it. And he needed a miracle <laughs> to get the locals' attention. So he asked God what to do. And God said, stick your staff into the ground. And he did, where it rooted and it flowered on Christmas Day. Well, there you go. Excellent Native Plant of the Month. Thank you very much, Ben. And coming up next month, what have we got? We are talking about whether we should be rewilding our gardens. And I think we might have a few surprising things to say about that. So listen up. We're excited about this one because we've been doing a lot of thinking. And we're also going to hear from gardening correspondent Ashley. But we do need more correspondence. So if you're up for hearing yourself on the podcast and sharing the wonderful things you're doing for wildlife, successes and failures, if you have any, then record five minutes or less about you and your wildlife garden. You can do this on your phone and send it to us at hello at wildlifegardenpod.com. And you too could get a round of applause from the Autoclappomatic 3000. How many times do I have to say that? At least once more next time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, right. This podcast runs on donations and you will never, ever have to hear an advert here. However, the podcast does cost us a few hundred pounds a year just in hosting and software fees, which currently come out of our own pockets. So please give us a hand and make a one-off donation to the podcast via our PayPal. Links in the description and all recent donors will get a special thank you in the next episode. So until then, keep exploring your gardens. Bye. Bye.